Travel can inspire us in so many different ways, and we'll hear a few examples in the hour ahead today on Travel with Rick Steves. We'll start in Israel. Eva Marie Everson is an American Christian who teamed up with an Israeli Jew to put together a coffee table book called Reflections of God's Holy Land, a personal journey through Israel. Eva Marie will explain how actually being in the land of the patriarchs and the prophets of Jesus and the apostles can shine a light on your understanding of the Bible. Then we'll head up the coast to the actual locations where St. Paul took his first big missionary trip. Imagine dropping in on goat herders sitting in their black tents. Basically, the same kind of tents that Paul himself made 2,000 years ago. And we'll call one of our listeners who spent a fascinating and inspirational year volunteering in 11 countries all around the world. I'm Rick Steves. Happy Easter from all of us here at Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. We're celebrating Easter today on Travel with Rick Steves by talking with an author who tells us how visiting the Holy Land and experiencing places mentioned in the Bible has actually given her faith a boost. We'll also follow in the footsteps of St. Paul, who traveled from the Holy Land across Turkey, through Greece, and all the way to Malta. And one of our listeners explains how she turned her travels into an exciting series of volunteer opportunities and helped others all over the planet. I'm Rick Steves, and I'm glad you're joining us for today's inspiring Easter edition of Travel with Rick Steves. Traveling through the Holy Land, you can understand why some people say the fifth gospel is the land itself. Being in the Holy Land makes the Word of God speak to you if you want to hear the Word of God and if you have the right approach. Today, we're talking about the Holy Land, and we're joined by Eva Marie Everson, who's written a book called Reflections of God's Holy Land, A Personal Journey Through Israel. Eva, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Rick. What does that mean to you when, when you think that people would say the Holy Land is like the fifth gospel? Oh, that just makes my heart flutter. Uh, just such a beautiful thing to say, and it's so true. When you're there, you hear God's heartbeat, and you feel his breath on your face, so I definitely can relate to that. Well, get a little more concrete with me if they had concrete back then. Uh, specifically, where, where would you be where you most vividly feel biblical times and where sitting there and reading the Bible really uh, makes more sense? Everywhere. I mean, seriously, everywhere. Obviously, there are modern cities in Israel and there are places that are more modern <laughs> than others. But everywhere you go, uh, you have the opportunity to see the landscape and to imagine it as it was and to see evidences of the stories that you grew up or that you're just learning for the first time. Now, I love the way you've designed your book. First, there's a scripture, and then there's a photo, and then there's the sort of factual rundown called Did You Know? And then there's Reflections. Those little bite-sized chapters are easy to absorb and thought-provoking. I'm going to give you a, a little series of places in the Holy Land, and what I'd like you to do is just limit it to a few sentences, but you tell me why these places are meaningful for a Christian pilgrim or, or somebody going there on a journey of faith. Let's talk about the Dead Sea. 
Oh, I love the Dead Sea. The thing for me about the Dead Sea is that when you're sitting there, behind you are the Judean mountains, and in front of you are the Jordanian mountains. And what I was reminded of when I was sitting there was that this is the lowest place on earth, and it's the saltiest water in the world. And I thought about that scripture that says that God holds our tears in vials in heaven, We come over giant mountains, wonderful experiences in our lives, and then we we hit a low in our lives. Something happens to make us sad or to knock the wind out of our sails, and, and we cry, and we feel like we really are at the lowest place on earth. But if we just look ahead, there's another mountain. That's what I loved about the Dead Sea. Talk about the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem. The Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem is a place where you can go and reflect on the birth of Christ. One of the things for me was remembering that it's geography and that Christ was born in my heart, but to reflect on what it must have been like for this young woman who was coming into a a village that she probably wasn't familiar with and suddenly thrust into uh, an experience she was not familiar with, but how God used that and her whole life changed. So it helps you connect with Mary and and her position. Yeah, yeah. when I think of Bethlehem, I connect more with Mary than I actually do with Jesus. And then talk to me about the Via Dolorosa. Well, that certainly is an experience, and it's one that it takes uh, a lot of time This is the road that Jesus climbed with the cross on his back after he was condemned to go up to the hill of Golgotha, right? That's correct. And in Jerusalem today, it even begins before that. It begins at the place where he would have gone into the house of Herod and Caiaphas and the different paths that he would have walked from the time of his arrest until his death. It's something that you take very slowly. You cannot take it all in the first time. Now, you've got pilgrims here from all over Christendom that are literally stopping at the stations of the cross. I mean, Mm -hmm. you've got them duplicated all over Christendom, but here you actually have, what is it, 12 or 13 stations of the cross. Yeah, I think it's uh, either uh, 12 to 14. Now, what what I learned, Ava, from your book is that the Via Della Rosa is not out in the countryside. The whole Roman style of justice was you condemn somebody and then you, you make it very public. And the Via Della Rosa was right in the middle of the town. And the whole idea was to parade the criminal past all the citizens on the way to his execution. Right. And through the marketplace. And today you still walk through the marketplace. You get that sense of what it would have been like, uh, people turning and staring. Now, he ended up on Golgotha, the place of the skull. But today that is marked by the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, right? There's a little bit of, uh, oh, no, it was over here. No, it was over here. If you walk the traditional Via Dolorosa, then you do end up in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. If you walk outside the Damascus Gate, then you can see what appears to be a skull on the side of a hill, which is closer to what is known as the Garden Tomb. So you can get sidetracked on, uh, you know, specifically where was it, but that sort of pollutes the whole experience, I, I would It imagine. really does. It really does. Because when you talk about the Garden Tomb, isn't there some discussion over where was the uh, roll away the stone tomb? Well, in in the garden tomb, there is a tomb, and you can see the place where the stone would have been rolled in front of the cave. The actual Um, spot. Yes. You know, the bottom line is, is whether it's in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre or it's in the garden tomb, there are no bones. There is no body. And that's what we celebrate. Well, that's the whole idea, the resurrection. That's right. And that's, that's Easter. That's right. 
I'm talking with Eva Marie Everson, the uh, author of Reflections of God's Holy Land, A Personal Journey Through Israel. Now, Eva, you co-authored this with a Jewish friend, uh, Miriam Feinberg-Vamush. Your book is really quite a devotional book for Christians. How did Miriam's contribution affect your work? Uh, in the most positive of ways. First of all, Miriam understands the Jewish faith, obviously, and the traditions, the history of a people that Jesus was born into. And so, of course, the root of our faith is the Jewish faith. We chose not to argue about the one thing that we don't agree on, but instead to focus on the many, many things that we do agree on. Miriam has been leading Christian tours for over 30 years. And we laugh because I have been a teacher of Old Testament theology for a lot of years. And she says that I know her scriptures better than she does. And I have to admit, she knows my scriptures <laughs> better than I do. So first of all, we could all guess, but tell me, what is the main difference between your understanding of God and Miriam's understanding of God? Oh, when it comes to the understanding of God, very, very little um, between the Jewish faith and the Christian faith. Uh, we just don't agree on whether or not Jesus was Messiah. For Miriam and myself, just the way that we handled it with each other, there was a afternoon we were in a church, and it was obviously very ancient. We were looking at these fabulous paintings that went all the way around the room of the sanctuary. And it started with the depiction of, of Gabriel coming to Mary and telling Mary, you know, you, you will be the mother of God and all the way to the ascension. And as I'm walking around and Miriam's two or three paintings ahead of me, I, I looked at her and I said, you know, Miriam, I, I, I don't understand why your people don't recognize that he was Messiah. And, and she looked at me and she said, what are you saying, Eva? And I said, well, he's the guy with the halo over his head. And of course, we just laughed, you know, <laughs> because there's so much love and there's so much respect between the two of us. And I tell you, honestly, as a Christian, that until you understand your Jewish roots, that that really you're, you're coming at it like the glass is half full. Because once you understand that, it, it just brings it to life. Well, give me one practical way that your Jewish friend helped you better appreciate the Holy Land as a Christian. Oh, my goodness. Just one? <laughs> just one. Um, first of all, everything that Jesus did was based on his Judaism. And everything that he did that we celebrate today was around the Jewish feasts and festivals. Mm -hmm. So understanding some of those so the Those context. feasts and festivals better helps us to understand more what Jesus was doing. Probably one of my bigger moments was understanding better the Seder meal, which would have been the Last Supper as we celebrate mm -hmm. it, and then understanding the tradition of the Jewish bride and bridegroom and how that relates to what Jesus was saying to his disciples about being the bridegroom. There are so many aha moments I remember the first time I was there, I started to laugh at how many times I went, oh, <laughs> yeah, because it made so much more sense after seeing it. One of the things that really stunned me when you're on the edge of the Judean desert and the wilderness itself, I always pictured it as being flat. When I think of desert, I think it's flat. And this is brutal and rugged and harsh. And there, the mountains of packed sand are higher than you can possibly imagine. And when you picture Jesus walking out into that, 
versus just walking out into a flat land. And then you think about 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. Suddenly it takes on a whole new meaning. So for me, that was a that was a huge moment being out in the Galilee when winds and waves actually started to pick up and realizing just how tumultuous that moment was for the disciples. So much more you know, telling than just reading about it in a book. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Ava Marie Everson. Her book is Reflections of God's Holy Land. Ava, fascinating conversation. What an inspiration to go to the Holy Land as a kind of a pilgrimage to better understand and get closer to God, whether it's uh, as a Christian or a Muslim or a Jew or somebody who just has a feeling for their creator. Absolutely. A trip to the Holy Land will change your life. I can tell you it changed my life, and I have never met a single person before, during, or after my trips to Israel that did not say the same. A visit to Israel changes your life. It changes your perception of God, and it changes your perception of your relationship with Him. And if you can go with the uh, help of a book that organizes your thoughts and gives you a context, like the book you've written, I think that makes it even more meaningful. Again, Ava Marie Everson, author of Reflections of God's Holy Land, thanks so much and best wishes. Thank you so much. Next, a Lutheran filmmaker from Chicago and a Muslim tour guide from Turkey team up to help us follow the path of St. Paul from Asia Minor across the Mediterranean all the way to Malta. And we'll take your calls at 877-333-RICK. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by American Airlines. Their Advantage program can help you earn miles toward your next vacation. Details are at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. I'm Katarina from Prague, Czech Republic, and I have one ton breaker for you. It's great to practice the most difficult letter in this alphabet, what we have, and that's the R. So we go like. 333 stříbrných stříkaček stříkalo přes 333 stříbrných střech. What basically means that 333 silver houses were watering 333 silver roofs. And if we can again practice that, 333 stříbrných stříkaček stříkalo přes 333 stříbrných střech.
Early Christianity's greatest missionary and theologian was a tent maker from Tarsus, the Apostle Paul. You know, he ended up traveling all over the Mediterranean world and did a lot to spread that little beginning faith. And today we're going to follow the footsteps of Paul like a lot of tourists do. I'm joined by Tan Iran, who's a tour guide from Turkey, and Tim Frakes, who produces uh, TV shows about church history and so on for the Lutheran Church. Tim Frakes, thanks for joining us. Great to be here, Rick. And Tan Iran, welcome to our great, studio. From great Turkey. to be here. Uh, Tim Frakes, what, what's the importance of the Apostle Paul, and why are there so many uh, tourist pilgrims checking out the footsteps of Paul? Well, I mean, Paul authors a large percentage of the New Testament. He's a central figure in the whole Christian story. I think Christians are interested in Paul, maybe because he's the road less traveled. A lot of people don't know that uh, Paul was from Turkey, and Turkey is not a place that is real high on the list for a lot of Americans. They go to other places in the so-called Holy Lands, but uh, um, Turkey's kind of undiscovered country. And this was quite instrumental in the very early days of Christianity, where Paul would go out and, and establish little churches and communities all over Asia Minor then. He was quite the traveler and uh, went all over that region and started these churches in communities that were sort of out of the uh, Judeo circle with what the New Testament calls uh, Gentiles. So Paul came, people don't know exactly, but most people figure he never met Jesus. He was sort of the next generation after Jesus, and he took this little religion that was percolating in uh, the Holy Land and took it as far away as Rome. He did, what, five missionary journeys? They say he traveled 13,000 miles uh, on these trips, uh, long before the age of train passes and rental cars. I mean, that's a lot of walking and a lot of sailing. We've got to remember, that was during the Roman Empire, and this is when the word Rome meant the civilized world, not the city of Rome, but everybody that spoke Greek or Latin was part of Rome. And Paul was there moving around, uh, spreading this gospel. How many books did Paul actually write? You know, that's a, that's a really uh, loaded question. Scholars debate back and forth. But, um, you know, we, we're pretty sure about uh, one of the letters that uh, Paul wrote, Galatians because he writes back to the churches that he starts in Turkey. Um, so we have Galatians, we have First and Second Corinthians. There's some debate about whether Paul wrote Ephesians or whether some of his friends or some of his students wrote Ephesians. Uh, Romans, of course, he wrote that. Okay, so Paul or his guys traveled to the little churches in Corinth, Rome, Galatia, Ephesus, and then he wrote the books to those people, to the Thessalonians, to the Ephesians, to the Galatians, to the Corinthians? These books that he wrote, so-called books, they're really letters. They're letters that Paul writes to the friends that he made as he traveled. And he would write these letters to these little churches, and then they would share those letters with other groups of Christians in the empire. And they would kind of go around and around, and pretty soon, after a few uh, hundred years, they got put into a collection that we call the New Testament. So these were giving the little churches direction and inspiration and encouragement. And today, Christians who care about the New Testament are excited to go follow the footsteps of Paul. Ton Aran, you're a tour guide. You take groups around to visit these sites. Yeah. Tell us what the highlights of a tour, which would be called the footsteps of Paul, would be. That would be Ephesus. Ephesus. Yeah. Paul had been to Ephesus for a couple of times in two missionary journeys, the second one and the third one. And uh, he actually lived in Ephesus for over a couple of years. That's when the riot took place, uh, the silversmith. So now, during Paul's time, Ephesus was a very important city, what, a quarter of a million people, one of the biggest cities in the Roman Empire. Well, Paul was uh, Saul of Tarsus, so he was a Roman citizen, so his activities were tolerated to an extent. And uh, that's the reason he, he could openly spread his word. How did he cause a problem in Ephesus? What was the dynamic there? 
he was lecturing uh, communities, church communities outside of Ephesus in the ghettos of the town, um, ex-Jews basically. But the point is, uh, he had people he knew in the city administration. He wanted to be uh, open, as open as he could in spreading the word of God. And his friends helped him organize a talk, a speech at the theater, which was uh, on the will of every Roman citizen, free Roman citizen. So he was a Roman citizen. He could do that. And people uh, gathered, not knowing what the lecture was all about. And uh, this is when the riot broke out. And uh, a silversmith actually started shouting, Great as Diana of Ephesus, and uh, this is how it all broke out. So Paul was saying, don't worship these little statuettes that the local artisans would make. And then the artisans thought, well, you're going to take our business away, so they got mad Well, anything that was related to Rome and Ephesus in that sense was about commerce. And Ephesus made its wealth, building statues of uh, gods and goddesses. Hmm. And uh, there were like uh, three temples dedicated to Roman emperors, the Roma, the Roman pantheon, and the Roman gods at the same time. And uh, emperors were worshipped as well. Not good for business. You got some Christian missionary coming in saying no, you don't Paul need to worship Paul was doing these. exactly what the Romans did not want. So now the theater you visited today, Ephesus is one of my favorite sites in the ancient world. Really, I just love Ephesus. And you've got this powerfully evocative theater that seats 25,000 people. Archaeologists can extrapolate how big an ancient city was by the capacity of the theater. They usually think that 10 times the population of the theater would be the reasonable guess on what the city was. So Ephesus Theater, 25,000. Therefore, they estimate the population of that city was 250,000 people. And Paul was there saying, you don't need to worship these goddesses. And people went crazy. And Paul was basically kicked out of town. Is that right, uh, Tim Frakes? He got kicked out of a lot of towns. He was a troublemaker. It seems like everywhere he went, somebody would get angry at him, or at least the book of Acts, which sort of chronicles Paul's journeys. Which, by the way, if you want the original guidebook on Paul, it's the book of Acts. Really? Uh, written by his friend uh, Luke, we think. It sort of documents his travels all across the Roman world. And yeah, he would get kicked out of towns left and right. Sometimes with just a uh, the bums rush, and sometimes he would be beaten and be in fear for his life. Now, Tim, uh, Paul was good at meeting influential women and becoming friends with them and letting them be the anchor for the newly born church in that community, right? Well, we think that early Christianity, or primitive Christianity, if you can use that word, was largely a house church movement, and women often led these house churches. So uh, Paul would, as in the case of Lydia in the city of Philippi, um, he meets this woman, Lydia, who is a seller of purple. She was uh, in the textile business, and it's likely that uh, Lydia sort of financed the house church operation in that part of Greece, and then probably went on later to finance some of his travels later on. So, yeah, women played an important role. Now, Paul also went to Corinth, right? And I understand Corinth was sort of a center of hedonism. Yeah, the big party town. And, of course, Paul has all kinds of troubles because he starts a church in Corinth, and then he leaves, and he writes these letters, first and Second Corinthians, back to the church in Corinth because they're having huge problems because they're trying to be pious and And they're competing upright. with Aphrodite, right? Aphrodite and uh, and a lot of sailors, you know, who would <laughs> who would use Corinth as a as a port. By the way, I enjoyed hosting a video production that Tim made for the Lutheran Church called "The Footsteps of Paul." We uh, had a chance to go to some of these beautiful spots. And for a look at Tim's other productions, you can go to his website, frakesproductions.com. F R A K E S productions.com. And Tan Aran is with us from Istanbul. His website is srmtravel.com.
Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're considering modern-day tourism along the same route St. Paul took back in biblical times. And we're taking your calls at 877-333-7425. By email, we're at radio at ricksteves.com. We have Gail on the phone from Harwood Heights, Illinois. Gail, thanks for your call. Thank you. Nice talking to you. Thank you. Have you been on a tour of the footsteps of Paul? Yes, I was in November. And what were the highlights? Oh, the entire trip was just fantastic. But uh, particularly with St. Paul, uh, we went with a Catholic church group, and we visited the House of the Virgin Mary and Ephesus was absolutely fantastic also. So tell me the, just briefly, what was the route you took as it related to St. Paul? Uh, the route of the trip was Istanbul, Ankara, Cappadocia, Pamukkale, Ephesus, Izmir, Pergamum, and Canakali. Canakali. And most of those cities were of historic, but not specifically to Paul. Is that right? Specifically, Correct. Paul was Ephesus, as Ton said earlier. Start, right. The route actually starts from Antioch, uh, being the early church community. Uh, Antioch is a very important place to start that. In the ghettos, actually, Peter founded this early church community, and this is where everything originated from. And Paul is from Tarsus. Tarsus is, is an important spot for that. These are all in the eastern Mediterranean coastline of Turkey. So if you start from, uh, say, Antioch, That's via, Antakya, today. Antakya today on the Syrian border, over Tarsus, you can go to uh, Antalya, and along the route, you can see Anamorium, you can see Seleucia, and Atalia, and Perge. Uh, that's where Paul actually left for Cyprus. And Konya, is that on the um, Konya, I wouldn't take it as, as a highlight. Uh, it will take two days to go to Konya via Lystra and come back. And uh, you could skip that part and go straight to, uh, say, Pamukkale, which is Hierapolis. And uh, you may be seeing Laodicea, which is one of the seven churches of Revelation. That's an important spot because there are not very many locations. You can see the actual remains of the first century A.D., and Laodicea is one of the places that's where you see the uh, water pipe bringing the water to the city. And that's the lukewarm water mentioned in, uh, in the Bible. And that's okay. where you see it, physically see it. Now, Gail, when you did your trip, where did you get the feeling of biblical times the most, or the times of Paul the most? Uh, probably in Ephesus. In Ephesus, because you went to the theater and they told you the story there about the riots? Yes. Hey, Tim, when you did your production for uh, The Footsteps of Paul, where did you feel like you could actually go back in time? Well, that question is one of the reasons why I thought Turkey was so great. When you travel to the traditional Holy Land sites, Jerusalem and so forth, in, in Israel and the occupied territories, centuries of Christians have built churches on top of churches on top of churches, so the original footprint is long gone in many cases. But eastern Turkey... Um, Christianity has not had much of a footprint for the last thousand years. So you really get a feel for what it was like for Paul to walk around and to try to climb over mountains and to ford rivers and so on. It's, it's, um, I thought uh, Antakya was very moving, the cave church of St. Peter, where the legend says that Luke, who writes the book of Acts, donated property to the Christians, and they started one of the first Christian communities in Antakya. And then Paul and his story figure in pretty importantly as sort of a base camp for the early church. So this is uh, a little bit confusing because there's modern names and biblical names. Antakya is a great Turkish city today. The biblical town was Antioch. Antioch. Uh, Konya is a very important city in Muslim faith. In biblical times, it was Iconium. 
And uh, you've got a a number of cases when you're thinking of one city because of what you learned in Sunday school, and then it has a modern name today. Tim, when you think about looking for little evidence of what it was like when Paul walked and wrote and so on, you can go to those black, um, black tents, right? Absolutely, yeah. Paul was a tent maker. That's how he made a living. He was sort of bivocational, an evangelist on one hand and a tent maker on another. And in eastern Turkey and rural Turkey, many people still make their living herding goats and making uh, tents out of goat skin. And you can actually visit with folks and spend some time in their tents, drink some tea or coffee, and feel what it was like to uh, to walk literally in the footsteps of Paul. So perhaps if you want to walk in the footsteps of Paul, rather than going to Antakya and looking at a modern building that stands on what might have been a synagogue where he preached, you could go into the countryside and meet a shepherd and sit in the shade under his black goat skin tent. That's that's what's fun for me. Tan, what is your advice in that regard? Yeah, on the Taurus Mountains, you find nomad families, and uh, they're doing exactly the same. Uh, living no, today, no, with even those black skin Even today. They're semi-nomads today. They're not living the lifestyle of the past, but uh, they still have the black goat hair tent. David's on the line in Chowchilla, California. David, thanks for your call. Well, thank you for taking it. I had a question about the security in that part of the world today. I spent two and a half months there 15 years ago, and I was just wondering how safe people feel in that part of the world today. Tim Frakes, you traveled all over the Middle East filming this uh, special on the footsteps of Paul with your camera gear, and I believe for much of that trip you were just on your own. Did you feel safe? Never at any moment did did I have my security threatened anywhere in the Middle East. It's been a wonderful experience with no thoughts for my safety, other than just traveling smart and behaving like you would if you were on the streets of Chicago, uh, which might be less safe than Turkey. <laughs> I would imagine. Ton, you take groups around. Are there any safety uh, considerations that None. you... So Turkey might seem a little bit uh, scary when you read the news and you, you think about different conflicts, but you're going to have uh, demonstrations in the streets in Europe as they deal with tight economic times, like we have these riots lately in Athens. But as far as an American tourist who's using good common sense traveling uh, around the countryside of Turkey, uh, I've found that it's quite safe also. Well, that's really gratifying. Now, David, you've actually toured the footsteps of Paul. What were highlights for you? Well, you know, I didn't set out just to do that. I went pretty much all over Greece, and I've documented it in a a paperback that I've recently published that is called uh, Oedipus on a Pale Horse. You can actually find it on Amazon.com now. But um, I went to so many places where Paul was. First of all, I was in Athens. I was in Corinth. And along the western coast of Turkey, where all the Greek islands are, Paul did some island hopping there, and, you know, you were talking about the religious experience. And there was no place I felt so intrigued by it as I did just around in that that whole area. I spent nine days on Patmos, and I actually got sort of stranded there because it was the middle of November, and the sea wasn't right for the ferries, so... I was there where St. John was exiled, and from there I went to Ephesus where St. Paul was. Now, St. John, Tim Frakes, St. John, he wrote Revelation in Patmos, is that right? That's what the text says, yeah. Now, that's an exciting place to visit. Well, yeah, it is really an exciting place, and you can go see the cave where he's supposed to have actually got the words uh, from God there. 
a marvelous place. It closes for the winter, and I was there actually on the last day that it was open, and I was the only one there. And they, wow. I, I had my own private tour. They took me down, let me take pictures inside the Cave of the Apocalypse, and it was just a marvelous experience. Patmos is, that's another apostle, so we're not going to be talking about that now. That was John, but uh, what a great visit right. to go to Patmos. David, thanks for your call. Well, thank you. Yeah. We're traveling in the footsteps of St. Paul as a way to better understand our Bible history. We'll continue in a moment with our guest Tan Aran from Turkey and filmmaker Tim Frakes on the phone from Chicago. Then, we'll check in with a listener who suggests following in her footsteps, or at least following her example, by volunteering around the world as a rewarding way to meet people and experience other cultures. It wasn't as expensive as you might think. She learned a lot and helped countless people at the same time. We're at 877-333-RICK, and you can share your thoughts with us anytime in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Right now, we're visiting with tour guide Tan Aran from Istanbul. Tan runs a tour company called SRM Travel, and Tan organizes itineraries that take in the sites where St. Paul traveled nearly 2,000 years ago. And on the phone is Tim Frakes. Tim's an independent filmmaker in Chicago who produces documentaries for the Lutheran Church, including one on the footsteps of St. Paul, which I had the privilege of hosting. Tim Frakes, I was with you in Athens as we were working on the Footsteps of Paul video, and I just was very impressed by that rock, that slippery rock that stands just across from the Acropolis called Mars Hill. Why are there so many Christian travelers and pilgrims on Mars Hill? Well, Paul is on one of his missionary journeys, and he's trying to uh, convince the uh, educated elite of Athens that uh, this Jesus of Nazareth is um, somebody that they should be interested in. So he preaches a famous sermon that's recorded in the book of Acts on Mars Hill. And so he kind of uh, has a a theological fencing match with the uh, Greek elite there on Mars Hill. So you can climb up there today, and uh, there's really not much. It's just sort of a barren rock, but what a great vista of ancient Athens. And you can see the Acropolis and um, really feel like you're standing in the footsteps of Paul. And you think there about the durable determination of this hard-hitting traveling missionary that that really failed in Athens, right? Well, yeah, they kind of made fun of him, you know. And if you read the book of Acts, you can sort of parse that out of the text that, uh, you know, he did really well in some rural areas and in Corinth and so on. But in Athens, they kind of uh, patted him on the head and said, well, that's okay, Paul, but uh, we'll, uh, we'll just stick with what we're doing right now. Mike's on the line in Harvard, New York. Mike, thanks for your call. Yeah, how are you doing? Good. Do you have any thoughts for Tim and Ton and me about the footsteps of Paul? Well, where I had intersected with those footprints is uh, the island of Malta, which is a very interesting place in the Mediterranean uh, south of Sicily. Paul was shipwrecked there for three months and uh, converted the Maltese to Christianity. Uh, 
there's a number of churches there dedicated to him, the Shipwreck Church in Valletta, which is the capital of Malta, and also uh, a beautiful cathedral in Indina, which is in the roughly the middle of the island. Malta's actually two islands, or, or a number of islands, but two large ones, Malta and Gozo. It's only 17 miles by 8 miles, so it's not a very large country. Very interesting place to visit. They speak English and Lots of good history. Lots of history, going back to Paul and Crusader times and oh, early church. Far back than that, to the earliest standing structures known. Are Amazing. There, uh, going back thousands on thousands of years. Well, and Paul doesn't go to uh, Malta willingly. His, his sort of island hopping happens towards the end of his career when he's arrested in uh, Jerusalem, and he appeals to Caesar, and he goes on this long sea voyage under Roman house arrest, and they... They take him, and the Book of Acts records all these little islands that they hit, and Malta is, is one of those. He was shipwrecked there, apparently. Right. And, of course, Paul eventually ends up in Rome, and he's eventually executed, right? And as a Roman citizen, he's executed uh, respectably by sword. Consequently, today when we travel, whenever we see a, an, one of the apostles in a big statue or in some sort of fresco, if the guy has a big sword, he's probably Paul. Is that right, Tim? That's right. Paul with the sword, and Peter with the key. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been following the footsteps of Paul with Tan Aran and Tim Frakes. Tan, when you take your groups around to trace the footsteps of Paul, what is one image that you like to leave people with for sure? That's in the Ephesus Theater. I would tell my people to uh, imagine how it feels like being there at the stage, 25,000 people cheering, and uh, not necessarily in your behalf, and their, their animosity, you know, I, I would take them there to the stage and uh, make them feel it. So and that'd be, that'd be it. Feel like that'd Paul be, being run be out it. of town by 25,000 angry Ephesians. Tim, what's your image that you'd leave people with if they wanted to really appreciate the footsteps of Paul? Oh, man, that would be the, uh, the rock churches of Gokirt, which is the biblical Lystra. And visiting there on a, on a windswept hill in the middle of winter and some local uh, Gokirt residents, uh, Turkish goat herders, dropped what they were doing, and gave me a tour of their rock churches, didn't ever ask for a thing, and uh, the memory I have is of, of those wonderful people I met in that fantastic, interesting place. Now, that would be Gokyurt, the modern-day town of G-O-K-Y-U-R-T, the biblical Lystra, L-Y-S-T-R-A. That's right, about 50 clicks uh, west of uh, Konya. So two great aspects of the footsteps of Paul— the wonderful ancient sites, and the opportunity to connect with today's culture in villages that have changed little since the time Paul walked and spread his faith. Tim Frakes, Tanaran, thank you very much for joining us, and uh, best wishes with your uh, further teaching and tour guiding. Thank you. Thank you. Recently on Travel with Rick Steves, we heard from a couple of families who took their kids out of school for a year to travel around the world. They found creative ways to budget their time and money so they could experience other cultures as a family. Well, one of our listeners recently contacted us with a different take on around-the-world travel. Seattle listener Joyce Major emailed us to tell how she took a year off to volunteer for about a month at a time at nonprofits literally all over the world. We've got her on the phone right now to tell us more about her year-long adventure. Joyce, thanks for your call. Thank you. Tell me about your experience. You were spent a whole year overseas volunteering in a number of different places? Yeah, I took a year off and went to 
um, well, I worked with kangaroos and elephants and lions and restoration work, conservation projects, um, just a whole variety of things that I had no experience in doing. So let's talk before we get into your specifics about this just as a travel option. So you set out to just spend a year uh-huh. learning, contributing, exploring the world. Uh, how did you find out what your options were and uh, how much did it all cost? Um, the whole year, I, I Googled for about two years before it, trying to find volunteer opportunities with sanctuaries and different schools and all kinds of places that might need somebody for about a month was about how long I stayed in each place. Mm-hmm. Um, and the whole thing was $24,000 for the year. So $2,000 a month for your airfare, your accommodations, and um, to just cover your expenses while you're doing this work. Right, right. So in other words, you have to cover your living expenses when you do these volunteer projects. Right, right. I tried to find the least expensive ones I could so that the money was going you know, right to the sanctuary or the project. Do they help you find efficient and economic room and board when you're going to be working with them? Um, typically, you stay right with them. And they do charge you, so they have a... Right. Uh, and that's good, because you're contributing to the organization you're contributing to by working there. Yeah, yeah. None of them have enough money to really... Um, okay. So it, you, you choose places that sort of uh, fit your passions and what you're concerned about. Exactly. I'm disappointed that you have to Google for that. Is there no guidebook or, or manual that helps people sort through their options? There is a guidebook now, Lonely Planet put one out um, since I've been back. I volunteer. think that's a great resource to be able to you know, look at a, a manual that would give you those options. Now, so you spent a year. Uh, what were some of the places? Give us a quick rundown on where you decided to uh, settle in and, and work for a month. Uh, let's see. I worked with monkeys in England. Monkeys um, in England. Restoration in Italy. Uh-huh. Uh, wildlife in Greece. Sustainability in New Zealand. I taught English in China. Um, I was a newspaper reporter in Ireland. Let's see what else they do. Elephants. Worked with elephants in Thailand and kangaroos in Australia. Wow. What a fascinating, <laughs> what a fascinating year. And did you connect it all with one big around-the-world plane ticket? No, I couldn't figure out how to do that. So I actually used air trucks. Um, they kind of organized. I tried to do it myself, and then I tried to get a couple travel agents, and it, it was kind of overwhelming. So um, You just bought point to point. Yeah. You're literally all over the globe. I was all over the globe, and I zigged and zagged a lot. Do you have a, just a ballpark? What did you spend for airfare, all, all these point to point tickets? Um, all the places, it was $5,400. $5,400. So kangaroos in Australia. Did you just like, you like, you think kangaroos are cute, so you looked on the web and you find out a, a group that likes kangaroos and you said, I'll help out? Yeah. <laughs> so what would you do with kangaroos? Well, um, the woman there got a sanctuary and there's um, joeys who, you know, have been orphaned. Their moms have gotten run over. And so basically... Oh, wait a minute. Joeys? Uh, That's what you call them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Little orphan kangaroos. Their moms got run over. <laughs> joeys. Okay. Yeah, joeys. And so... My job was to make bottles for the joeys and um, give them bottles and feed them and put them down for their naps. And then as they got a little older, because I was there a month, so as they got older, they got to go out and play with the big kids. And then I needed to go, um, well, the big kangaroo. You need to go to the elephants in Thailand next or something it, like yeah, that. Yeah, well, that was about two months after that. So, yeah. <laughs> after a month with kangaroos, <laughs> did you like them more or less? Oh, more, more. Really? Kangaroos aren't, I don't know if they're like smart, but they're very sweet. Do they really bounce around, boing, boing, boing? Yeah, they do bounce on, bounce and bounce. And I got to see two of them do like a pretend fight, you know, like you'd see Oh, in like cartoon. in a cartoon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They do that? They do exactly. With their little tiny arms? <laughs> that must have made you laugh. <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> okay. Tell me about Elephants in Thailand. Um, Elephants in Thailand is this uh, wonderful woman from Thailand, of course, who um, rescues abused domestic elephants. Okay, so she was in the paper or something because yeah, of her yeah, good yeah. work, and you heard about that, and you just emailed her and you said, I'm a good person, I'm a hard worker, uh-huh. I can take care of myself, what can I do to contribute? Uh-huh. And what'd she say? She said, come, come love the elephants. And tell me how you loved the elephants. Well, we washed them in the river, so you got to scrub them. We dug out a huge mud pit for them because once they're clean, they have to go get dirty. Oh, yes. We washed all their food and got to feed them every day. Uh, cleaned elephant poo, um, which is actually pretty light, not bad job. Planted bamboo and did a lot of eating. They had really good food at that sanctuary. They had some great cooks. Huh. Lunch had like six different courses and dinner was always ten. Did you ride elephants? Uh, I did. I did, just a little bit, because when you're riding, like, right up on their shoulders, yeah, it's unsteady. Yeah. I, I, I didn't find it was, like... Uh, Not relaxing. No. <laughs> I almost lost my legs on an elephant. I couldn't believe it. I was just having the fine old time, and my legs were dangling down on the side, and then yeah. it, it sort of docked against a big concrete pier where the tourists would get off, and just at the last moment, I realized, oh. my legs are going to get squished, and then he went into the concrete pier, and had I not brought my legs up, that would have been the end of my trip. Oh, my gosh. Did you actually have the elephants doing work there? I've seen them work like tractors, you know, in Thailand. Um, No, you know, I think Lex's whole philosophy is that this should be their retirement. Okay. But I did have one elephant who got a little nervous around me and, and thumped me in my chest with his trunk and threw me. They could probably knock you for a, a loop with their trunks if they wanted to. Yeah, yeah. I, I think if he had wanted to really do harm besides huh. just throwing me in the air. I'm talking with Joyce Major, and she's from Seattle, Washington. She's set out on a one-year extravaganza, deciding to stop in 10 or 12 different spots for a month at a time and volunteer. She spent $5,400 for the air, $24,000 in total for this one-year experience. And did you figure one month per stop was about right Choice? Yeah, um, I kind of arbitrarily set that because I wanted to see enough of the world, and I, I kind of wanted to be there long enough to get a feel for it. So It's a much more in-depth and, I think, better way to experience these cultures than to just be zipping around looking at a bunch of museums. Uh, the, the book that's out that we mentioned earlier is called Volunteer, uh, A Traveler's Guide to Making a Difference Around the World by Lonely Planet. This is a new book by Lonely Planet to help people do what Joyce did. Joyce, tell me about Restoration in Italy. Uh, Restoration in Italy was two wonderful archaeologists who were trying to save old farms so that they don't just get destroyed. And so our work was building the walls back, working on a particular farmhouse, trying to get the garden to be usable. They wanted to be able to hold concerts and functions in the farmhouses so that the cities would have a reason to fund this project. So was um, this a private venture where somebody who just happened to have a nice Renaissance villa and they wanted some help figuring out, or was it part of the patrimony of the country that the government was concerned the about? The government was concerned. It, it was the archaeologist's idea that they could get the government to pay for it if then they could use it as a, a resource to okay. bring people in. And was that rewarding work for you? It was hot. It was hot. It was hot, hard work. But the people that were doing that work were really fun. So, And again, the food. They had a really good cook. So our food was just amazing. It sounds like you lived well, as well as working <laughs> in different areas. You must have learned more in this year than you've learned in any year of your life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm sure. And I hadn't traveled much before. 
All I'd done is gone to um, Israel to volunteer uh-huh. at an archaeology site, and I'd gone to France. That was it. Did anybody pay you at all? No, no. So uh, if you're willing to work without pay, and if you've got a couple thousand dollars mm-hmm. a month to cover your costs, mm-hmm. you can basically, it sounds like, find the most fascinating work in countries all over the planet if you know where to look. Exactly. Exactly. Wonderful. Yeah. So, Joyce, you must have learned a lot. Now, you put this experience into a book. Tell me about that. Um, it's called Smiling at the World, and it just goes through my experiences from each place so that people can kind of get a feel for what it was actually like each place that I went. Smiling at the World. And you've got a website, which is uh, predictably smilingattheworld.com. <laughs> exactly. And you were smiling at the world from uh, 10 or 12 fascinating viewpoints. It was just such an amazing year. I mean, I learned so much and I connected so well with so many people that I just had to write about it. What was your agenda in writing about it? Um, I, I think sharing how connected everybody is. I think it was just, you know, there wasn't any fear involved in it. It was just how wonderful it was to help people and to be with people who were passionate about what they were doing. Imagine if everybody spent a year working with kangaroos in Australia, elephants Mm -hmm. in Thailand, writing for a newspaper in Ireland, working on sustainability in New Zealand, (laughs) restoring old stuff in Italy. Wow, I think the world (laughs) would be a different place. Yeah, I I think we wouldn't read about things in newspapers. We'd feel that we were all a little more connected. So, yeah, I I actually teach classes on how to take volunteer trips because I want more people to do it. Good for you. Well, once again, if people want to learn more about Joyce Major's work, you can go to smilingattheworld.com and check out her book by the same name. Thanks, Joyce. Thank you. One of the ways you can participate on Travel with Rick Steves is to send us a short essay bragging about your hometown or compose a haiku poem evoking the magic of your travels. The radio section of our website at ricksteves.com has a link for you to send us your haiku. Mary Lou Harris of Kirkland, Washington, sent us a three-part haiku poem to share her amazement at the view from her hotel room in Athens, Greece. Arriving in hotel room, putting luggage down, looking at the window, is a sight so white and sublime on the rocky hill in the darkness of the night. There it is, the Parthenon. Takes my breath away. Worth the journey for this view. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more on our website. That's where you'll find links to our guests, a forum for you to post your comments, and a link to send us your original haiku. That's also where you can listen to this program again and search for prior shows by topic. It's all in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Production thanks today go to Pat O'Connor, Sarah McCormick, Gretchen Strauch, Andrew Wakeling, and to Matt Dula at WMFE Orlando. Our music excerpts for Easter included Gregorian chant from Felix Maria Wojcik and Usted Sultan Khan, and from Compagnie Che Busca, plus Armando Pierucci, the choir of St. Gregory's Episcopal Church in San Francisco, and Vangelis. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. I'm the show's producer, Tim Tatton. Join us again next week for Travel with Rick Steves.
Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by American Airlines. New vacation options in Latin America, plus getaways in the U.S., Europe, and the Caribbean are at aavacations.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.